you know, a lot of times I get to share the gospel with uh, some of our young adults, uh, people especially in their 20s, maybe people in college or coming right out of college. And it's quite interesting, like when you share the gospel with a teenager, and then you share the gospel with um, a young adult, and then you share the gospel with someone uh, in, who has a family and, and 30s, 40s, it's quite different. The reason why they reject the gospel is, is quite different, especially for people in their 20s. I think the number one reason why they reject the gospel is this. It's not because it doesn't make sense. Uh, when you present the gospel, they would say, I understand that there is a God. I also understand that sin is a problem. I also understand that Jesus is the only way and that we need to respond to that, but I'm just having too much fun right now. Like, it feels like I need to give up so much in order to follow God. Like right now, I have my buddies. I have you know, places to go. And it feels like if I become a Christian, all I can do is just read my Bible, pray, and come to church. And that sounds so boring. That, that's, and that, uh, where's the fun in that, right? And so um, I was definitely... Uh, one time in that position, and I think a lot of us really struggle with this idea because on one side, it seems like really Christianity is a great religion, but on the flip side, it seems like the moment you decide to follow Jesus Christ, that's when life gets really, really hard. That's when the fun goes away, that you're, it's all about suffering, it's all about enduring, being patient, right? It seems like all these challenges come your way, and so a lot of people would say, I would rather live in, in, in blindness, not seeing those challenges, not experiencing the difficulties. I would rather walk my own way. And that's exactly what Paul is addressing in today's passage. Remember, this is a letter that Paul was writing to Timothy um, personally, but at the same time to the church. The whole letter is about what does it mean to be a family of God within the local church. Paul says this in 1 Timothy three fifteen and 16, how The church is the family of God, the pillar of truth, which is also the church of the living God. So starting from this chapter, Paul goes into some really specific issues that the church of Ephesus was struggling. I think it's very relevant to us as well. And a lot of these issues are actually related to false teaching. So look at verse 1. It says this, Now the Spirit expressly says, that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So the church of Ephesus had a group of people who were teaching not from the gospel, not sound doctrine, but these people were spreading false teaching, which eventually would lead people not to love Christ and love God, but to walk away from Jesus and his church. It says that some will depart from the faith. So Paul is saying that is going to be a future reality for you guys. Paul's not speaking about people that are not within the church. He's talking about people who are, who are worshiping together. Like even among us, he's warning us that there's a possibility down the road in five years we might not see each other you know, you know, at some points. And you just imagine the people that you felt like, oh, they were faithful followers of Jesus, and, and where are they now, right? You might have seen people like that within your life as well. And this is to no surprise because Jesus actually predicts this. He says in Matthew 24, 11, when he's talking about the last days, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And the false prophets are not arising just from outside the church, but from within the church 
it says that this idea of people falling away from the faith, it's not just an idea that Paul has. Paul says this is actually the very word of the Spirit of God. Like God is aware of what's going on, and he says this is going to happen. So why are people walking away? Why will people actually depart from the faith? Uh, this week, a lot of our college students are going, uh, remote college students are going to their campus, and we have some people who are starting their new journey in, in college. And you remember when you graduate from, from high school, you think, okay, when I go to college, I'm going to be a faithful Christian. I'm always going to go to church on Sundays. It's going to be easy for me. That's all I did um, basically for, my, for my 18 years of my life. And the moment you go to college, like, it, it becomes really, really difficult to even wake up on Sundays. No, some of us might think, I grew up in church, I attended X amount of years, but no one is exempt from the temptation of walking away. The Bible makes it very clear within even the church, there is a possibility that people would walk away from their faith. And Paul says in verse 1, the reason why this is a real problem is because the source behind this is demonic and it is satanic. It says, Deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, those are the things that these people are going to hold on to. And when we think about teachings of demons, we, we think, is the ghost coming and speaking to these people? Are they like doing witchcraft and all of that? But I don't think that's really the case. You know, if you think about Satan and what he does, the, we know the enemy, the, uh, Satan, uh, the devil, he is the father of lies. We know that when he engages in spiritual warfare, when he comes after us, when he's trying to shake up the church, he doesn't come in with red pitchforks. He doesn't come in with loaded guns. He comes in with lies. That's how he attacked Adam and Eve in the garden. That's how he attacks us today. He is the father of lies. He is a deceiver. A lot of times when Satan attacks you, no, you're not even going to realize he's attacking you because he's so good at disguising. You have to understand that Satan, the devil, does not have power to create, but he does have power to distort and twist. He himself does not have power to destroy. That belongs to God, but he can lead people to destruction. How? By leading people away from the source of life. This is why when Satan shows up in the garden, he begins his conversation with, did God really say? Like, he knows he can't do anything on his own power, so all he can do is mislead people and trick people. His ultimate goal is to lead mankind away from God because he's living that type of life, right? He wants to serve the Lord, he's away from the Lord, and he wants everyone else to follow his pattern. There's a spiritual battle going on around us. We have to be aware of that. We have a real enemy. The devil is really out there. He is actively working in our lives for our destruction. They don't come, these demons and, and the devil, they don't come with all these visible weapons. It says in Ephesians 6, our war is not of flesh and blood, but it's against spiritual beings. Like A lot of times we don't even understand that we're being attacked because of the false teaching and deception. So the first point I want to make today is this. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled that you're just going to be okay. Don't be fooled that you're never going to be attacked. Don't be fooled by the devil. Just because you're not seeing ghosts at night does not mean Satan is not working in your life. As much as God is working in your life, the enemy is trying really, really hard because it says in the book of Revelation, he knows that his time is up. He is going after the people of God. So don't be fooled by the devil and don't be fooled by people. 
It says in verse 2, the people who are clinging on to this demonic teaching, to the deceitful um, thoughts, it says, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are, are seared. And so the reason why people are holding on to this satanic, demonic, deceiving teaching is because there are false teachers who are insincere liars. That, that's what the Bible says. And so this is like, like double trouble right here. Because not only they say wrong things, but their life does not reflect anything of what they teach. It would be one thing if they're teaching bad theology and they're living according to it, right? But they're teaching one thing and they don't even live according to what they teach. So they are liars and they are also hypocrites. They are insincere in, in what they teach. And it also says their conscience are, are seared. And so you know this if you cooked a steak. Uh, the most important thing when you cook a steak is a good sear. Right? You have to have high temperature, quickly sear each side. Why? You want to trap all the goodness of the meat inside. That's what you're doing, right? So if you create a crust, nothing can go out. That's exactly what's happening here when it says that their consciences are, are seared. Their hearts are so hardened. Like nothing can go in. Like they reject all truth. Like they, they are so, so desensitized in their hearts. They are numb to the truth. And so you see that not only is Satan deceiving, but the false teachers are also incredibly deceiving because they not only speak of lies, but their life itself is a lie. And this is complete opposite to what Paul tells Timothy, right? Paul tells Timothy, be a man of truth. Fight for the gospel. Guard the gospel. You know, protect sound doctrine. That's what he says. And he also says, do it with a good conscience, a conscience that is aligning with what you teach, that's what he says. Teach what is true and do it with a good conscience. You have to make sure you are buying what you're selling. Now, it would be really weird if someone comes on TV or on YouTube nowadays uh, and, and they have an advertisement and, and, and they say, I, I like Honda cars, like they're, they're a model for Honda cars. And then you meet them in real life. You're expecting, okay, like this person can drive a Honda car, but they're driving a completely different car, like a Hyundai, a BMW, something else. And you're like, what, what happened? Like maybe it was your role model, like a sports uh, athlete that you liked, uh, a celebrity that you liked, and, and you, you feel betrayed. A lot of times, this is what false teachers are doing. They're, they're putting out an advertisement, and yet within their life, they're not living according to their advertisement. So don't be fooled by the devil. Don't be fooled. By people. So, what exactly were these people teaching? Now, there's a lot of things that we're teaching uh, that were wrong, but one thing that stands out in verse 3 is this. Look at verse 3. It says, Who forbid marriage and required abstinence from foods. Now, I have to be very clear um, the act of, of, of not getting married, the act of abstaining from food, that in itself is not bad. It's, it's actually, a, it could be a good thing. Paul himself says, I don't get married, he says this in 1 Corinthians 7, because I think it's a good thing. Like, I have so much that I need to do for God, it would actually be a distraction if I have a family. And so although I understand God's good design for marriage and for family, you know, because God placed a specific calling in my life to be a missionary to the Gentiles, instead of embracing God's good gift, I have a better gift in living single for the glory of God. And so he actually says singleness is actually a good thing if you're living it for the glory of God. We also know that throughout the Bible, fasting is a good spiritual discipline if it's done correctly. 
Jesus himself fasts occasionally. He also taught others to, uh, to, uh, to, to fast in such a way so that you would abstain from food and draw closer to God. So the whole action of staying away from marriage or abstaining from certain food, that in itself is not what's at question. What's at question is not the action, but it's the motivation of what they're teaching. It's the heart behind their teaching. But because the false teachers, what they're basically saying is this. If you want to be holy and pleasing to God, you shouldn't marry. If you want to be holy and be kind of this super Christian, that's when you have to abstain from certain foods. That was their teaching. They weren't just saying these are okay things to do. They were saying that actually the Bible talks about marriage and the Bible talks about food, but really deep down inside, you know, God, he wants you to be single. And God, he wants you to abstain from certain foods. That's what makes you holy. And that's how you become acceptable to God. And maybe for some of us, we might not struggle with marriage or, or food when it comes to our position before God. But I heard before, you know, um, I, I remember a missionary saying this once. Uh, she was a single lady in the mission field. And she said, I don't get married because I'm married with Jesus. Like, and that's an awesome statement. At that moment, I was like, man, this woman is holy, right? She, she is so holy to the point where she doesn't need marriage. Like, she's married with Jesus. Uh, and, and, and when we hear people fast for 40 days, different fastings, the immediate reaction that we have is, man, that, that person is pretty godly, right? Like, we, we get really impressed. Why? Because we feel like if you abstain from certain things, that makes you more holy, I remember when I first became a Christian when I was in high school, this was back in Korea, I was, I, I was trying to be a good Christian, right? And, and I remember uh, some of my teachers and, uh, would, would bring snacks for small groups. Each Sunday, they'll bring snacks for small groups. And, and I heard that some teachers, they buy their snacks on Saturday. Why? Because they don't want to use money on Sunday. And, because it was violating the idea of the Sabbath. And so I was like, man, that is super holy, right? You are going out of your way and to, 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 to buy these snacks so that you're preparing for Sunday. That's, that's, I mean, bless their heart. Now, there, there was, there was a, a 7-Eleven right in front of our church, right? And so every Sunday, I would watch that 7-Eleven, right? And it's right in front of our church. And I would see people go into that 7-Eleven, and I would be like, sinners, right? <laughs> you are violating the Sabbath law. I'm holding myself back. I'm going to drink water from the fountain. You know, I'm, I'm judging people in, in such a way. Like, when we hear, like, a Christian drinking, what, how does that make you feel? A Christian who is really into Netflix. Someone, a, you're, there's a Christian fan, they're talking about the latest show on Netflix. Um, a Christian who plays video games. A Christian who smokes. A Christian who does drugs. You know, I think we have this idea that a Christian has to be a certain way and should abstain from certain things. Now, I'll get to kind of the bottom of it. And I heard uh, this. um, A lot of times when we go on mission trips, especially foreign mission trips, the expectation that we have for missionaries is that they are living in really poor conditions, that their house is falling apart, they have no A.C., and I heard that in past years when um, there would be short-term mission trips that, that take place and a team would go to a place, and if a missionary is living under AC, right, or they have some, some a nice property, or I'm not talking about, you know, being super rich, but I'm simply saying, like, you know, a, a, living, a living condition that is 
better than kind of, you know, what we would consider poor, if they're living under that condition, you would think, man, this missionary doesn't get it. Like, this missionary is ungodly. Like, we would judge people based on how they are living on the outside. The whole idea of this false teaching, and a technical term for this is asceticism, which simply means if you abstain for certain things, especially things that are pleasurable in this world, if you can abstain from those things, you're actually more godly and you're actually more holy because it means you have more self-control. And it's not just Christianity in different religions, right? They promote this, that uh, certain religions say, like, if you want to be kind of a servant of God, you can't get married, uh, you should live a certain lifestyle, you should isolate yourself from society because society itself is wicked. It is bad. Like, so don't, don't go after material things. That would be the teaching. Now, again, I'm not saying that simply abstaining from certain things um, itself is bad. The action is not what is wicked. It was the intention of the heart. So why is this really a problem? What's underneath this type of teaching? Look at verse 3 and 4. Here's what we see the problem. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So here's the problem. The very thing that these people were avoiding, marriage, food, are things that the Bible actually said these are actually good things and God-given gifts. That's the issue. Like, it's, it's not just that they were denying these things to draw closer to God. They're actually saying, no, actually, God doesn't want you to get married. And so that's contradicting Scripture. He says God doesn't want to enjoy food. That's contradicting Scripture. Why? Because who created marriage in the first place? God. Adam and Eve, they came together because of God. It wasn't that Adam went out of his way to grab Eve. No, God saw that it was not good for a man to be alone, so he brought Eve to Adam. And so he's the one who created and institutes marriage. We also see that God is the giver of food, and he gives food to people so that we can delight in it. Just think about Eden, a place that's full of all these trees. And God says you can eat from every tree of the garden. Every tree, not just some trees, but every tree of the garden except from one tree. That's grace right there. God is so generous and good. He says you can eat from every tree. And just in case you, yeah, you're wondering, where does meat come into play? If you go to Genesis 9, after the flood, finally God says, now you can eat from any animal too, but just don't eat the blood. Right? Because within the blood, there is life. And so not only does God make us vegetarians and, and enjoy, have us enjoy food, he even allows us to eat meats which is also an awesome thing. And although in the Old Testament there are specific meat that are prohibited from God's people, Jesus comes in the New Testament and he explains how really it's not the action, but it's the heart that's the matter. What defiles you, not what goes into your, your system, but what comes out of your system by doing so. He says he declared all things that you can eat clean. So we have a good God. We have a good God who allows us to eat all these things to enjoy intimacy within marriage, to enjoy life. So don't be fooled. And the second point is this. Don't reject God's good gift in life. Don't reject God's good gift in life. 
Just because you're enjoying something doesn't mean that you're doing something wrong or bad. Just because you're experiencing pleasure doesn't mean that pleasure itself is bad. The word Eden, by the way, itself means delight. God created a place so that Adam and Eve would delight in that place. It wasn't simply an empty space that just had the presence of God. It had the full presence of God and also all the goodness that comes with it. There are real tangible things that Adam and Eve were able to enjoy. They were able to enjoy one another. They are also able to enjoy all that God has provided. So don't reject God's good gift in life. And number three is don't try to save yourself. Don't try to save yourself. A lot of times, the reason why people go down this route saying that abstaining from certain things will make me more holy is because they're not confident in the grace of Jesus Christ. It's because they don't believe that just trusting in Jesus is enough. And therefore, they say, believing in the Bible and the gospel is good, but I have to do a little bit more extra to really have God's favor. And so, really what comes comes out is this uncertainty in your heart. No, grace is too good to be true. The Holy Spirit is too hard to follow. Therefore, I need to take charge. So when you say that if I abstain from certain things, I become more holy and I have a better chance for salvation, you're basically on your own salvation plan. That's, that's the real problem. You know, people think there's only two ways that you can live. One way is that you become a Christian, you follow Jesus, and you live a miserable life because that life is full of suffering and hardships. But you get to go to heaven. The other way is that you get to enjoy all the words, worldly pleasures, happiness, you know, all the good things in life, and you go to hell. And so because you don't like the second part, you, you, yeah, you, 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 you're, you're forced kind of to go with the first option. But when you kind of go to the first option, you're like, man, if, if life is hell like this, I'd rather kind of just live in hell later on. So it's really, really confusing. But did you know that the gospel allows a third way? The gospel of Jesus Christ actually says that you can follow Jesus and you can have the fullness of God and still enjoy everything that comes with it because God is the source of joy and delight. It says in Psalm 34, 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Christianity is not a killjoy religion. It's a religion, it's a faith that helps you find true joy. 1 Timothy 6.17 talks about how God richly provides for us so that everything we can enjoy. No, we can enjoy all these things with a good conscience because we have a good God. And so when we say we have to abstain from certain things to live a better, holier life, We are rejecting the goodness of God and we are not believing in the sufficiency of the saving work of Jesus Christ. And that's why this is a central issue. This is a gospel issue. And so how do we respond to a text like this? I don't know what kind of things you guys are enjoying, but one way we respond is this. Respond to the good gifts of God with thanksgiving. Respond with thanksgiving. In verse 3 and 4, when it talks about receiving God's good gifts, it always says, receive it with thanksgiving. What does it mean? When you receive something, 
you recognize who the giver is. When you're eating something good, you're not just stuffing your mouth and saying, man, this is good. But you're thanking God for the good food that you have. When you're enjoying intimacy in marriage and you're loving your wife and, and you, you're not just saying, man, this is a great moment, but you, that leads you to honor God and love God even more. So when you are out in nature, maybe on a vacation, and you are overwhelmed by the beauty of nature and you're humbled at that point, instead of just saying, man, this is a good time, you give thanks to the Lord. When you are spending time with a friend and you're having a great conversation, not just saying that, man, this friend is a good friend, but you thank God who gave you a great friend. When you're spending time with family and you're having a great time with family, like you don't feel guilty about just being a homebody, but you say, man, God, I'm so thankful that I have a family who's so loving and caring. When you are playing sports with where your heart is beating and and you are sweating in a friendly competition, in a God-honoring way, just like sports ministry does, right? Uh, That's when you say, man, God, I am so thankful that I'm alive. I'm able to have these brothers and really enjoy the life that you give me. Instead of just saying, man, I'm so good at this sport, it leads you to appreciate how God created you. When you are creatively drawing or even working in different areas, instead of just saying, man, I'm thankful, for, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that this company is so great, my coworkers are so great, I'm so talented. No, don't stop there. Make that, that, have those things lead you to worship. I love what John Piper says. He says this, sexual relations in marriage are not worship, but may become worship. Smelling toast and bacon early in the morning is not worship, but may become worship. Feeling, ball, uh, feeling uh, fall breezes on the skin and fall sunshine on the face and fall colors in the eyes and fall fragrance in the nose are not worship, but they may become worship. Tasting and enjoying the pleasures of this world is not worshiping or honoring or loving or supremely treasuring God, but may become that. And so what he's saying is this, God's good gifts should lead you to worship thanksgiving and so is that happening or are you actually worshiping those gifts like i like i hate this when this happens like you know like when my kids i give them a present and all their focus is on the present right they're like oh this is an awesome present that's awesome and always try to remember who gave you that present right (laughs) because a present i give to them so that they would understand my nature my love for them right so a little bit of thank you would be nice right and so although I gave them that present to enjoy it, what should ultimately happen is through that present, these kids should realize the love that they're experiencing from their parents, from their friends, other people. And so the gift of God, all the good things that God allows us to have in this life leads us to worship. But the second thing that we have to remember when you apply this is this. Enjoy God's good gifts according to his good design. Enjoy God's good gift according to his good design. If you just stop here, you might think, man, I can just do whatever I want to do in this life. But notice it says in verse 4 and 5, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. That's an interesting statement, right? So if God creates all things, and all things are created in a good way, why does it have to be made holy? 
The reason is because we have Genesis chapter 3. The reason is because although God created all things good, sin destroys and distorts good things. And, they, and, and, and because of that, we are confused when it comes to God's goodness. No, God told Adam and Eve, you can have everything in this garden. It's all for you. Just stay away from this one tree. Just don't eat from that tree, the tree of knowledge, good and evil. And even that command was a blessing for Adam and Eve because they did not have the capacity to understand what was good and evil in their lives. So even with that, God is saying, let me set you some healthy boundaries here and you can enjoy everything else. Satan walks in. What is the first thing that he says? Did God really say to you that you can't eat from that tree? And the moment he asks that question, Eve says, wait, let me think about this. Like, that, that's true. Like, why can't I eat from that tree? And as she's answering, she doesn't say God allowed us to eat from every tree. She simply says God allowed us to eat from some trees. So the goodness of God is decreasing. And then she says God told us not to eat nor touch from the tree of knowledge and evil. So the restriction of God is increasing. And then he said, God says, if you eat from this tree, you will surely die. Eve responding says, this is a possibility. I might die if I eat from this tree. So her view on God got twisted when the, the devil entered into the picture. And in the same way, I think we can fall into the same, te- same temptation. We can think, man, God created, no, God created food. I can have all the food I want. And, and you, 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 you enjoy food in a way that's uncontrollable. That's called gluttony. Like you say, God created man and woman. And like biologically, we are created to enjoy one another within intimacy. Therefore, I'm going to have all the sexual intimacy that I want with whoever I want. Like that's called sexual immorality. And so God is not holding back these gifts from you. He's saying that you can't have these gifts. What he's saying is there's a better way to use these gifts. It's actually a good way to use these gifts. So the only way that you're going to experience God's full pleasure and joy is if you use these good gifts in the way that God designed it. That's the important part. I don't think it's sinful to play video games. But if video games become the center of your life, that's when a good gift, what God's intention has been distorted. I don't necessarily think that even maybe... Um, having a lot of friends is a bad thing, but if your life revolves around friends, then it becomes a problem because you're taking God's giving gifts, but you're not using it according to his good design. So I think you kind of get the idea. How do we understand how to utilize the good gifts that God has given to us? It is through the word of God and it is through prayer. The word of God and prayer allows us to meditate on God's design and so that we can enjoy God's good gifts with wisdom according to God's way. So don't be a fool. Don't reject God's good gifts in lives. Don't try to save yourself. Always respond with thanksgiving. Also, ask for discernment through the word of God and through prayer. Was Jesus a joy killer? No. He lived single. He never was married. However, if you remember, his first miracle, his first sign was performed at where? A marriage. The problem was that there was a lack of beverages. Wine ran out. Someone comes to Jesus. This is a problem. Because when there's no food and drinks to enjoy, there's no joy. And what Jesus does through his miracle is this. He makes the party continue. He provides true joy to the party. Jesus is not a killer of joy. He actually is the one who can only bring true joy. 
People tried so hard to make that wedding a perfect wedding. And yet without Jesus, that wedding fell apart. But when Jesus entered into the picture, that wedding became a wedding that is full of joy. And Jesus says in John chapter 3 that I am the bridegroom that comes for you. The way that the Bible ends is in this beautiful marriage between Jesus and the church, who is called the bride of Christ. And when he says that, he's saying that I came to give you joy. So if that's the one thing that's holding back from you from following Jesus, I want to invite you this morning to actually submit to Jesus and experience the true joy that he gives you. Amen? Let's pray.